down just a reminder to pray for Jeff Phipps and his uh, trip to um, uh, Brazil. It's coming up November 23rd through December the 3rd, and he'll be teaching down there, and that ministry down there is really taken off, so we need to really be praying for him. Also, the Christmas boxes for the shoebox ministry with Franklin Graham are out in the foyer the 10th. 10th of November is the deadline, not the 3rd, like we said the other day, but the 10th is the deadline. So that is uh, that main announcement. And then also, uh, if you do not receive emails from the church, we sent a couple out this week. So if you don't get the emails from the church, if you haven't received any, then you need to go to the westhoustonbiblechurch.org website and sign up to make sure you're getting the uh, communication from the church. Also, daylight savings time ends a week from Sunday, and so we need to turn our clocks back an hour. That should do it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made note unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll have a few moments for silent prayer, so that you can be spiritually prepared for our time to study the word. A time whenever we reflect on the word is a time of worship as we proclaim the truth of the gospel and the content of God's word. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, you have created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. The heavens declare your handiwork. And we can look out at all of your creation and see a reflection in a finite form of your omnipotence and of your glory and of your grandeur. And Father, we pray that as we go through life and we have so many things today that are distractions, so many things that come uh, hitting, hitting us from a thousand different directions every hour, it's easy to get caught up in the activity and all the distractions, but we need to be focused and we need to be settled. We need to focus on you and think through uh, how we are to live our lives, how we are to think through the situations that confront us in such a way that you are glorified and that we do not allow our sin natures to just run away with us. Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word, continuing our study and Uh, what Peter says about leadership in the church, that you might help us to understand that even though we may not be leaders in the church, we are to be leaders as Christians, leaders in our homes, leaders at our place of employment, and we are to also live as an example before others. And we pray that we might be challenged by the truth of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we are continuing our study. We have a couple of things left to cover in our study related to leadership in the church. I've gone over this for the past seven lessons because I have not taught on some of this, and it's important to understand these passages, questions often come up in people's minds, why, especially here at West Houston Bible Church, we don't have elders, other churches have elders, what's the difference between a church that has a pastor and deacons, one who has elders and deacons, what's the difference between an elder 
uh, rural congregation or a single pastor-led congregation and understand what the Scripture says uh, about these things. And so uh, we've gone through this, and last week took time to understand why it is that many of us will translate Ephesians 4.11 as pastor-teacher instead of uh, using it as pastors and teachers. In English, it looks like this is uh, two gifts or two people, whereas the Greek grammar makes it clear that they are two terms referring to the same person. They're not synonyms. There's a con- important uh, distinction between them, and the key one is the word for teacher And pastor is an enhancement related to guiding or leading the congregation. And so that brings us back to uh, our passage in 1 Peter 5, where the emphasis is on how the leadership is to lead. Their style of leadership is characterized in Scripture as servant leadership. Just a reminder, in the first couple of verses... Uh, P- Peter says in verse 5, 1, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He uses the word elders presbyteros, the noun as a title for the leader, and then he gives them a command to shepherd the flock. That is their, uh, what they are to do. And it uses the verb form of the noun for shepherd. And we would translate it perhaps pastor, the flock of God, which is among you serving as overseers. And so these three terms are uh, interconnected and somewhat synonymous in the early church, in Acts chapter 20, Paul uh, uses these same terms that he, as he addresses the elders, uh, the, the uh, presbyteroi in Acts 20.17, and identifies them as episkopos, or episkopoi is the plural for overseers, and that they are to shepherd the sheep. And we saw that shepherding is an image that goes all the way back to the Old Testament and emphasizes this aspect of leading and guiding. But everything that is involved in this metaphor for a leader involves doing it on the basis of the Word of God. When I began this, I listed seven questions we ought to ask and answer in relation to how these terms are used. And we have done so. We've looked at the terminology of the church, that this is called, the church is called the body of Christ. And it is, uh, the term ecclesia is not used in this technical sense until the New Testament. When Jesus uses it in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock, I will build future tense my church, which indicates that it is yet future. It, It was not in existence in the Old Testament. Uh, if you come from a Presbyterian or Reformed background where uh, their theology is influenced by replacement theology, then they see the church in the Old Testament, that the, uh, Israel in the Old Testament is the church, and in the New Testament, uh, the church is spiritual Israel. And this is completely at odds with what the Scripture teaches. We look at the development of leadership in the book of Acts that the church began on the day of Pentecost in AD 33. And leadership developed, it comes out of the synagogue. The early church often met in the synagogue. They came out, that was their, their point of contact. They would often go to synagogue on Sunday, go to church on, um, I mean, go to synagogue on Saturday, go to church on Sunday. And in the few very ancient churches that have been found, was discovered that their architecture was very similar to that of a synagogue. That was what was familiar. The same thing's true with terminology. They will take over the terminology of an elder uh, right out of a Jewish background. That's what they were familiar with. Moses appoints elders in Israel uh, at um, back in Exodus. And so this this term had knowledge. 
and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through the the lesson uh, today. So leadership developed gradually because with with so many coming out of a synagogue and the uh, services and everything were very similar, the leadership was similar. Uh, In the early part of the apostolic period, you didn't need to write or discuss this a lot because people still knew what you were talking about. But by the time you get to the end of the apostolic period into the 50s and 60s, especially when Paul is in prison in Rome, now he's going to define by revelation what those leaders are going to be in the church. So it did not need to be there early on. Initially in Acts, you just have elders talked about and you have the apostles talked about, no mention of deacons. The first time you have a church identified as having elders and deacons is in Philippians 1.1. When Paul writes to the church at, at uh, Philippi uh, to the de- elders and deacons, and that's a prison epistle. Uh, so that is uh, early on. He writes Timothy, First Timothy probably after he got out of that first imprisonment, uh, before the second, and then Second Timothy is written during the second imprisonment. So we looked at how leadership developed in the early centuries of the church age, the three basic forms of church government, the scriptural terms that are used for biblical leaders in terms of uh, elder, pastor, and overseer, and then the two questions left to answer are number six, what are the roles of deacons and elders biblically, and seventh, how many elders should there be? So we're going to look at this now in terms of what does the Bible say about deacons and elders and his church government. And just a reminder that the term elder emphasizes maturity. Primarily, if you were Jewish and you were going to serve as an elder in a synagogue, you would also be older because they had more life experience, they had more wisdom. And if they were a pillar of the community, then this was how they would qualify to be uh, to be an elder. So it it's it doesn't completely dismiss the idea of being older, but then within a Jewish context, how old did you have to be to serve the Lord? Priest was thirty, then he could serve the Lord. Uh, Jesus is around thirty when he begins his ministry. I don't think he's exact. Uh, Luke just says he was around thirty. He's not exact. So. Uh, Of course, maturity came a lot earlier in those days than it does today. I've read studies that that maturity for emotional maturity for baby boomers at the age of 21 or 22 is equivalent to a 30-year-old in a millennial today. So there's quite a bit of difference. The term bishop or episcopoi, the Uh, The bishop or the overseer emphasizes part of his responsibility and function. And then the term pastor emphasizes a role and responsibility of spiritually feeding and nourishing the sheep through teaching. So what we then see and we look at the role of deacons and elders is, first of all, that the prototype for the role of elder, bishop, or pastor-teacher whichever way you might call the senior leader of a congregation, is really grounded in a prototype in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Now, I've talked about that, and this isn't stating that these were elders and deacons, but it is setting a, a paradigm for that. You have the apostles who have been the only leaders in the congregation, the only leaders, and they, by this time they have twenty or 30,000 believers in Jerusalem. They're administ- overseeing the administration of uh, food and gifts to the, to the widows. The, those who come from Hellenistic Jewish background are being overlooked, so complaint arises, and the apostles decide, notice God doesn't tell them. Think about that. God doesn't tell them, go and establish this organization. They do it as an application of their the doctrine that's in their soul and the understanding to be organized. And so they understand what their mission is because they're to feed the sheep. 
So they need somebody that is going to take over this administration of the finances and the and the giving and support for the widows to take it off of their uh, off of their back so that they don't have that responsibility. And so the 12 get, gathered the multitude of disciples. So it's a, a gathering of, of many of the believers of the congregation. And they say it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God. They don't get navel gaze to say, oh, what does God want us to do? We don't have them sitting there and waiting for God to answer a prayer. They have probably prayed for guidance and and from the doctrine that they know, they're making a decision as to what is what is wise. Uh, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God. Notice they understand their priority. That is the study of the word of God and serve tables. And that is the, the Greek word diakoneo. It's the verb to serve. And it comes out of a background where you'd just be, be serving tables and taking care of things. And so they conclude, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we, that we may appoint them over this business. And so they're going to the congregation to make the recommendations for leadership because the people in the congregation know who's mature, who the leaders are, who have taken spiritual responsibility, who has a good reputation, who are walking with the Spirit. And so they they will, uh, as it were, nominate or recommend those individuals. But then you see this important statement at, in verse 4. Uh, Peter says, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's the primary focal point for the ministry of the apostles, which sets a uh, a pattern for what the responsibility of the elders will be uh, down the road. So at this point, the only leadership in the church has been the apostles, and we don't have an identification of elders until we get to Acts chapter 11, verse 30. Elders of the Jews are mentioned before, but elders in relationship to Christian leadership are not mentioned until Acts 11.30. And this is a context when Peter, excuse me, when Barnabas, who has just retrieved Saul from, from uh, up in Tarsus and brought him back to the church in Antioch, uh, they've come back and the word has come that there's a famine, a financial need. The Christians are in dire straits in Jerusalem. And so they take up a collection. It's a free will offering. The people are motivated to give on their own. They're not, they don't go to the government. They don't dictate how much. It's as each one has been prospered by the Lord. And they send a financial gift by Barnabas and Paul to the elders in Jerusalem. Now, we're never told when the church developed elders or what the circumstances were, but by this time, which is a, about five or six years after the crucifixion, and so it's probably about five years after the uh, events in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 6. So by this time, they, they, they've developed. So what we see is is not divine revelation coming and saying, okay, do this, now do this, now do this, now do this, but that the apostles are meeting the need as the church is growing and transitioning from infancy to adolescence and on to maturity. And so at this stage, the only leaders mentioned are elders and apostles. The elders, as I said, would be a very familiar title and concept to these who were, at this stage, still Jewish background believers coming right out of the uh, right out of the synagogue. Now, elders are not specifically specified and described, uh, except in terms of their character and responsibilities in the pastoral epistles. They're not described earlier. The, only, the first hint that we get of what they were supposed to do was when Paul calls the elders in Ephesus down to meet him in, in Miletus, and there he tells them that, that they need to shepherd the flock. 
and they need to protect them because wolves are going to come in in sheep's clothing and cause much uh, damage and destruction in the local church. And so they need to protect the flock from these uh, wolves that are uh, about the destruction of the church. But it's... um, it's when we get into the latter part of this apostolic period. Remember the resurrections in 33. You have Peter and Paul both martyred sometime in the mid to late 60s. And so that probably by after the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70, the according to church tradition, the only apostle that survives beyond that is the apostle John, who's the only one who dies of of, of old age. And so it's at this critical time towards the end of Paul's ministry that he is writing to this young pastor, Timothy, who, and by young, he's probably in his thirties. He's writing to Timothy and encouraging him as to what his priority should be in the local church as a pastor in Ephesus and what is required of of leadership. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 2, he's going to describe something about the overseer, the episkopos. And I, I want you to notice... Um, something that when you read through these, we're not going to go through all the qualifications, but when you read them, notice the emphasis is not on necessarily academic preparation and qualifications as it is on spiritual maturity and spiritual character. But I want to bring out one aspect of what is required of a a pastor, teacher, overseer, elder. A bishop, therefore, uh, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and able to teach. Now, this word is a form of the word uh, didaskalo, which is the word for teaching. And didaskalos is the word for a teacher, which is someone who just provides instruction to people on whatever topic it may be. But this is a form of that word, and it means to be skillful in teaching. Now, if you heard this in the King James Version, uh, you heard it translated there as apt to teach. The problem with that in English, and I put this up on the screen, is that apt is, um, is something that is just adequate. Okay, they're just adequate. But apt isn't adequate as a translation for this this word. Uh, the word apt means to, that you have a tendency to do something. Think about that. You have heard different pastor teachers in your spiritual life. Would you say that they just have a tendency to teach? or that they have a passion and are driven by their spiritual gift to teach. They are skillful at teaching. So the uh, Bauer Art and Gingrich Dictionary uh, I, translates it as skillful in teaching, as does the New International Dictionary of New Testament uh, Theology. It is more than just being able to fill in in a Sunday school class. This is somebody who is skillful in teaching. So we need to understand... Well, how skillful is, 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 is Paul talking about here? Titus 1.9 is going, and, and a couple of other passages are going to clarify this for us. In Titus 1.9, when talking about elder qualifications there, Paul says they hold fast the, wor- the faithful word as he has been taught. That means in light of... Um, in light of 2 Timothy 2.2, which is the middle verse, that we are to commit what we have learned to faithful men who will be able, and the word there means to be qualified or competent to teach others. That's the key verse for Chafer Seminary, by the way. And it's an important verse because what I see, and we see so much breakdown in our culture, 
But I go back and I know I have worked with some of the pastors and other uh, Bible teachers that I grew up under. I remember listening to many of them when I was in uh, junior high or high school. I first heard Charlie Clough when I was a, a sophomore or junior in, in high school. So and, and many, many others that I knew. And I heard some of the uh, great Bible teachers at Dallas Seminary when I was in college in the early 70s. But what is sad is that what they gave me was a body of doctrine and an understanding of the word. And yet very few of those men are still holding to those same firm convictions related to dispensationalism and free grace and other things that they had in the 60s. I know of some that, that just failed completely and they just flared out in the Christian life. They were not faithful men to carry to the next generation. We've been given a body of truth to take to the next generation and so that they can take it to the next generation. Not so each generation modifies it and morphs it into something that is culturally acceptable to their generation. It is true because it's biblical. And I've spent 40 years as a pastor, number one, searching out to make sure this is what the scripture teaches. And second, refining some of the arguments because it is what the scripture teaches, but it may not have been stated well uh, at the time. So we are to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now this isn't just being having a tendency to teach. This is somebody who has really absorbed the word to such a degree that they can stand up in the pulpit and they can teach the word. Uh, they may not teach it uh, as well as somebody who's been in the pulpit for 30 or 40 years. But I remember when I was uh, 29 years old and got in the pulpit as a pastor for the first time, and I'm glad no tapes exist from that at all. I think I have one very early one hiding in the house somewhere, and if I find it, I'll destroy it because we don't want it to leak out anywhere. But that's that's not uncommon uh, and, and it's part of the role of a of a congregation is to train young men, and that means to suffer through their learning process as they grow comfortable in in the pulpit and as they put ideas together and learn how to how to communicate but this is what it means to be uh skillful in teaching is able to challenge people with the truth of god's word as well as to explain why what they're saying is true and to refute or convict those who disagree. So there's an apologetics aspect to that as well. Second Timothy 2.2, we're to pass this on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also going from generation to generation. And then in 2 Timothy 4, 5, Paul tells Timothy that he's to do the work of an evangelist. Now, he's not going to be an evangelist. His gift wasn't an evangelist, but this is what every pastor should do. I grew up under a pastor who almost every time he spoke made the gospel clear, presented the gospel, not like a Southern Baptist preacher where that's all they do, but at least to some degree in three or four sentences, the gospel becomes clear. I've heard people, Jerry Falwell was that way. He would be interviewed on Nightline, and he always managed to zing the gospel in there whenever somebody stuck a microphone in front of him. He understood that he needed to do the work of an evangelist, and that's part of the responsibility of, of, any, of any pastor teacher. So... This, these are the qualifications of an elder. I've served in, uh, I served in one church back in the 80s in Irving, Texas that had elders. It was a young church. I've mentioned it before. I think we had two people in the congregation that were, that were over, that was over 40. And he was about 43. 
Everybody else was under 40, and that wasn't uncommon uh, back in the mid-80s or, or in the 70s. Baby boomers were going out and starting new churches as Dallas and Houston were expanding, and there would be these congregations, and the leaders in those congregations were in their 30s, some in their 40s. And many of those men, especially in Houston, I used to be able to go around to almost any Bible church in Houston, and I knew two or three of the uh, deacons or elders or leaders in each church because at one time they had been uh, at Baraka Church, or I knew them from uh, Camp Penile or someplace like that. But they remained key leaders in those churches well into their 70s or 80s. But they, if, they, we, if they were honest, they may not have been, they would probably say later they weren't as mature as maybe they thought they were when they were uh, deemed an elder at a church when they were 35, and they certainly didn't have all the training that they, that they should have had. Uh, when I went to the church in, in Irving, uh, there were four elders. Not one of them was really qualified to be an elder because not one of them was skillful in teaching. And this is one thing I see as as a problem in in a lot of co- congregations that have elder rule. Now I know of some that that do, and they have some uh, qualified men uh, that they identify as elders who are skillful in teaching. But none of those guys that I had were. Uh, when I came to the church, there was a lot of confusion over the nature of the gospel. Uh, they didn't understand the free grace lordship issues. There was confusion over prophecy, over dispensationalism, over the role of psychology and counseling and the mission of the church and the role of the pastor. And so I had to gradually, slowly sort of whip that congregation into shape, and that came only because of consistent Bible teaching. Uh, the, all those men, though, were potential, had the potential to be good, mature spiritual leaders. They were just... They were just young. Um, they needed to be a little older, both physically as well as as spiritually. So that's that's part of it, and that's part of it as well in terms of being being a pastor. Now the conclusion to all of this is that the man who is identified as the elder, the bishop, the overseer, the pastor, teacher. Uh, is to shepherd, he's to feed and nourish the congregation. In some larger congregations, there may be more than one. That's possible. I don't have a problem with that. As long as one is the leader, that he is the man that God has gifted with the vision of the congregation. When you have a plurality of elders in some churches, I've seen they all have equal say, including the pastor and they get into problems at some point, a great way for Satan to disrupt things because uh, you, you develop multiple visions for what the church should be. And once you have that, then you're going to have disagreements. You need to have one person who has the vision and sets the course that God has put into his mind in terms of leading that congregation. Uh, he should not, though, lord it over the congregation. I, I know of some pastors who have um, uh, come very, very close to just a, a, a lord it over the congregation like a Gentile category. They're just basic little dictators, and that's their little popedom. And uh, usually their congregations don't get very large because of that. Uh, they don't do a very good job over, over that at all. And what we'll talk about that a little bit on, when we get into First Peter 5, uh, 3 and 4. So the primary mission of the pastor, teacher, overseer, bishop is to feed the sheep through the teaching, the exhortation, the proclamation of the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation all of the scriptures, and his time should primarily be given to prayer and the ministry of the word. As it states in Acts 6, 4, uh, as Peter said, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So that's the first question that I have dealt with in terms of the uh, role of elders, and then the second part is the role of deacons. The role of a deacon is somewhat less defined. 
the word deacon is not used until the first times I mentioned earlier in Philippians 1.1 when Paul is writing in his prison epistle to the church at Philippi, I'm writing to the elders and deacons. That's the first time that deacon is used. And the other times are in the passage with the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. So the pattern for this really does go back to Acts chapter 6. Those aren't deacons. They're not called that as a noun. But the verb diakoneo is used in that they are serving the church in various uh, administrative functions. And so the uh, deacons oversee administrative responsibilities of the congregation to free the pastor to be in prayer and to study the word. But they're not the only ones involved in administration because God has gifted every one of us in different ways to minister and serve the body of Christ. Therefore, as others in the congregation mature, they're going to pick up and should be picking up responsibilities in regard to visiting the sick, going to the hospital, visiting people at home. Uh, We have a lot of shut-ins in this congregation. They should be seen regularly and checked up on regularly. Uh, I certainly don't have time to do that if I'm going to be teaching and studying the Word. I try to get out on occasion to visit people. I don't consider that a distraction. It's also a way in which I get to know people in the congregation uh, a lot a lot better. Uh, there needs to be ministry to the widows, and we have a fine group of wid- a large group of widows in this congregation, and they have basically taken the initiative among themselves to encourage each other and to minister to one another. And they have done a a really fabulous job of that over the years, and that shows a lot of spiritual maturity. Uh, Scripture also talks about the fact that older women are to be guiding younger women. Now, the word there is teaching younger women, but most people stop there. See, older women are to teach younger women, so this is the basis for having women's Bible studies. Well, if you carefully look at Titus 2, 4, and 5, it says that the older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands, how to love their children, how to take care of things at home. It's all related to domestic responsibilities. It never once says older women are to teach the younger women the Bible. It doesn't say older women are to disciple younger women. I think in some sense you, they, they do, and that's a great ministry. And, and uh, if you've noticed, we're getting a few younger couples coming into the congregation, and it's it's a great thing if the uh, more mature couples will build relationships with these younger couples. We, they, it, it gives them an opportunity to, to have somebody who's been in the Word a long time that they can talk to when they're just struggling with whatever comes along that they may be uh, may be struggling with. So what we see is that the elders focus on the spiritual needs of the congregation, prayer, and the teaching of the word, and then the deacons pick up the responsibilities, for example, uh, building, building maintenance, uh, administrative, paperwork, um, finances, all of those kinds of things. Then we come to the second big question, which is the seventh and last question in our list, and that is how many elders should there be? And this gets into the whole issue of a plurality of elders. And I really don't have a problem if it's set up right, if you have a board of deacons and their responsibility, if you're a big church, let's say you have 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 people, you may have a large uh, group of deacons and you may have a large group of men who are identified as elders, and they are, as it were, under shepherds of the primary pastor teacher who is leading the congregation. This idea of, of that you have to have a plural elder leadership is often seen by many in Scripture because m- most of the time in the New Testament, the term elder is in the plural. And it is often associated with a lo- what appears to be a local church. 
But when you go to places like Ephesus, which is one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, there could have been numerous congregations. And so when the elders come to meet Paul at Miletus, it might have been 10 or 15 uh, pastors of 10 or 15 congregations meeting in Ephesus. By that time, uh, there had been a number of people uh, converted to Christianity and establishing. And, and I, I think it's very shallow of us to think that they were still just meeting in house churches when Paul himself had been renting, um, you know, a, a lecture hall for two years teaching the word. So th- that kind of thing could definitely take place. Also, uh, you you have uh, many other places where where you do have elders with one congregation. You have a few of those, but that could have been a large congregation. We don't know enough about them to say anything uh, definitively. But we do have something very interesting exegetically in 1 Timothy chapter 3. When I introduced this, what I was going to say about this second question, I said in almost every place in the New Testament, the word elder is in the plural. The conclusion for many is that means there needs to be a plurality of elders in every congregation. I have a practical problem with that. There are a lot, the average size of a congregation in the United States is 100 people. Out of 100 people, I don't think you're always going to find qualified men to fit that pattern. I think it becomes artificial. And I think in many churches, especially those that are uh, they're 60, 70, 80 adults. They may not have anybody that is qualified in terms of maturity. And so uh, you just have that single pastor. Now, what would we do to support that in Scripture? Let me show you something. Uh, well, before I get there, I wanted to hit one more passage. That is Ephesians 4 talks about the role of the pastor-teacher, as we studied last time. They're to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to edify or mature the body of Christ until we all come to a unity of doctrine. So it's really focused on teaching. That's the mission statement for a pastor-teacher, to bring them to maturity, to a knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. Now, that means a mature man, teleos, in the Greek, with the result that we're no longer like children being tossed around and to and fro by every wind of doctrine. I mentioned the church I went to in Dallas in 1986. That church, I mean, they they, they had people from all across the theological spectrum because they would just go from one thing to another depending on what they were hearing because they'd never really been uh, well taught and, and, and established. So, That's the role of the pastor so that everyone in verse 15 can grow up. The pastor is in charge of maturing the congregation. Okay. Here's the passage. On the screen, I've listed parts of the verses from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. These are the requirements, the qualifications for an elder. I want you to notice that in this list of qualifications, the noun elder and the pronouns that refer to the elder are all in the singular. And the verbs that relate to them are all in the singular. And the participles that are translated are all in the singular. They are not in the plural. It says, this is a faithful saying, if a man, singular, Desires the position of a bishop, an episcopat, singular. He desires, third person singular verb. Uh, Verse 2 says a bishop. Verse 4, one who rules, third person singular. His own house, the own is third person singular. Having is a participle that's singular. Verse 5, if a man does not know how to rule his house. So if a man is singular, doesn't know how to rule his own house. His is third person singular. How will he, third person singular verb, take care of the church of God? 
not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall, third person singular. Moreover, he must, third person singular, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall, third person singular. So everything here is talking about the elder in a singular noun. Guess what happens when you get to verse 8? You get to verse 8 and it lists the deacons. Every time you see the noun for deacon, it's in the plural. Every time you see a verb, it's in the plural. Every time you see a participle, it's in the plural. What's presented here is a singular elder and, and multiple deacons. Now, what you find is I've read and, and been searching to see how those who hold to a plurality of elders handle this. They always fall back on that one thing that just sort of irritates me. It's like somebody stuck a burr in my saddle. Oh, it's a stylistic change. Well, that's what you use when you don't know the answer because what appears on the surface is contradictory to what you're trying to say. It is singular elder and plural deacons. Now, that does not mean that it's necessarily wrong for these churches who have plural elders to have plural elders if they're, if they're of a certain size and they have certain needs and the men are actually qualified. As long as there is one elder pastor teacher who is the leader in the congregation. But in verse 8, we read deacons must be not given. It's a plural participle. You go down to uh, verse 10, let these also, these deacons refers back, it's plural. Let them serve as deacons, both uh, plural pronouns and the plural noun. Uh, That there is put is not in the original, so that's why I didn't underline that. And you get to uh, verse 12, deacons are plural, husbands is plural, their children, their own houses, that's all plural. Verse 13, those who have served well as deacons, the par- the, those who have served well as a plural participle, deacons as a plural noun, obtain for themselves a plural pronoun. So there's the point, is you have singular reference to elders and plural reference to deacons. And I think that fits a vast number of congregations throughout history. Uh, America and a lot of Western European uh, churches have been quite large, but in many places in the world, they're very, very small and they meet in, in just in a house somewhere. And so there's one, one leader. And if he's lucky, fortunate by God and blessed by God, then he has, um, you know, one or two people that can help him out as deacons. So that takes us out of our seven questions and back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, which talk about uh, the leaders in the church and why, what their motivation should be in serving and how they are to serve. Uh, in verse 1, let me just pick up the context. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, one thing I should note, remember he's writing to those who are scattered, who are in Bithynia and Pontus, the north-central area of what is today Turkey. He's not writing to one town or one village. He's writing to a number of towns and villages in the area. And so there would represent a number of congregations. Some of them would have been very small. Some would have been a bit larger. But so this fact that he uses a plural for elder doesn't mean that they are all the leaders of one particular congregation. Pastors and theologians always, and, and everybody, always has to be careful not to read preconceived notions into the text of Scripture. So Peter identifies himself as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Last week we talked about the Granville Sharp Rule. I usually don't mention it because I I don't find that, I find it's important some doctrinally significant passages, but you have a you, you have a Granville Sharp rule here. You have a, an article, and then you have the noun fellow elder and witness. 
and they're linked together in that structure, and both of those nouns are referring to the same person, Peter. That's what a Granville Sharp rule does. He's their fellow elder. And the fact that he calls himself a fellow elder here and not an apostle, which he does at the beginning of the epistle, is to make sure that that they understand that he is not lording it over them. This is not something that he's dictating to them. He's not pulling rank on them. He is demonstrating humility as he is giving them instructions on how they are to lead the church. And he says he's a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And so even though he wasn't at the foot of the cross, he was nevertheless a witness of, of the, all the prophecy that Christ gave about his uh, suffering about his crucifixion. He was there to witness some of it in Jerusalem. And then um, then he was there to, to hear from all of the others and to witness everything that was going on in Jerusalem. And so, so this is all part of it. And so he, then he talks about that and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. What does that mean? We've covered most of this already. That goes back to the Mount of Transfiguration. He and Peter, he and James and John went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there they saw Jesus transfigured in all of his glory, and with him were Elijah and Moses. So he was a partaker of that glory. It was a foretaste of the glory of the Messiah when he comes in his kingdom uh, in the future. So he's rehearsing his credentials there. He gives them a command, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Earlier, he talks about uh, sheep that are scattered. But now the flock is the flock of God, and they need to be led and guided and directed, serving as overseers. That is those who are, uh, that's the episcopoi, the bishops serving as uh, overseers. It emphasizes the administrative oversight from the pastor teacher not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. See, what you have there is three, three pairs of contrasting terms to make his point. So we have to look at those as we go through this to bring out that point. And then he concludes with the fact that we that these elders, what's been going on here? Major theme in, in Peter has been adversity is coming, suffering is coming for your your uh, stand for the gospel. Because you are a Christian, you are going to come under increased opposition from people you think of as your friends and uh, your family and from the culture around you. There may even be persecution that arises, but certainly you're going to face a lot of of negatives because you as Jewish background believers have taken a stand that Jesus is the Messiah. And so these leaders, these these uh, uh, episcopoi, these elders, the pastor teachers have to have, be men of maturity, men of stability, men of leadership, men who can anchor the community in the midst of the opposition and hostility that's going to come their way there uh, uh, Paul, that's why Paul tells Timothy don't lay hands on somebody too young why because they have to grow and mature in the faith they have to go through trials they have to go through failures they have to go through heartaches in their life and trust God and see and learn about his faithfulness in those circumstances before they're ready to take on the responsibilities of being a pastor teacher. And so uh, he's he's talking to these leaders saying, you need to uh, apply this in your leadership because you're going to be the anchors for those congregations when the really tough times come. And he defines this in terms of their motivation and in terms of uh, their future reward because they serve the Lord. And that's in in uh, verse verse 4. So in verse 2, it says, Not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So let's look at this phrase. Verse 2 says, Not by compulsion, 
but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. That's the first two pairs. They're contrasting terms. The first term is not by compulsion. And I'm not sure, and as I've read this, looking for some possible examples, I didn't find any, uh, how people would be forced or be forced into being a pastor. How would they come under compulsion to take on that responsibility. Perhaps they might have a somewhat exaggerated sense of duty. Uh, it does happen today where where people feel like, like that's expected of them by their family. Uh, there's some sort of uh, pressure that they've imagined, and so they take that route. And so uh, maybe that's what this is talking about, uh, having a false sense of duty, and somebody takes on the responsibility and, but Peter says, not by compulsion. It's something you do willingly. It's voluntary. It's that you have a desire to do this. And this word is the word ekousios, which means willingly, voluntary of your own decision. A lot of times young men will come to me and they'll ask, or not so young anymore, well, I think maybe I have the gift of pastor teacher. Uh, what should I do? And my usual response is, it's good advice. It didn't originate with me. It was given to me and given to many generations before me. And I'll say, well, go do anything you can do unless you just can't do anything but be a pastor teacher. Because you're going to go right into the heart of spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict, the angelic conflict. You're going to come under all kinds of attack you're going to have to deal with a lot of sheep, and that's not a pleasant thing sometimes. And you're going to uh, serve the Lord, and you won't uh, make a name for yourself, and you won't make a lot of money, and you won't have a lot of the things that your uh, friends and colleagues that you grew up with had, and, and people uh, in the community may not respect you very much. Uh, because you're a pastor. They know how to relate to a lawyer and an accountant and a businessman, but they don't know how to relate to a pastor. So go do whatever you can do, but if you just can't do anything else because you're driven to be a pastor, then then that's what you should do. And that is what it means to do it willingly, where you just you just have this fire in the belly. That's the only thing you can do. And so that's that's this first pair. Don't feel like you ought to do it, like it's something expected of you, but do it because it's your passion, do it because you're willing, do it because that's your 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 heartbeat. Second pair is translated in the New King James as dishonest gain. It is the Greek word iskrokerdos. Iskrokerdos which is used two other times in similar in elder passages and there in 1 Timothy 3:2 it is translated as greedily or fond I think maybe fond of sordid gain and in Titus 1:7 I the one got left out of that slide Titus 1:7 and in both of those cases it's talking about the requirements of a pastor, teacher, of an elder, of an overseer, or bishop, and so it. it and and a, a sad thing is, is that in many churches today, and it, it was true in the ancient world, there were those who would be put in a position of trust, and then they would abscond with the money. And especially you didn't have banks and those kinds of things in the ancient world. So they would they would steal the money. And so uh, there were those who used that as as a, a way to get ahead. Uh, dishonest gain. But instead, the contrast is eagerly. And this is a synonym for accusios on the left, prothumos, willingly. And it has the idea of being having a prompt response and to cheerfully be ready to do the job. That no matter what the job is, you're ready to volunteer and help and do it. And I'm going to tell you a story. I heard this story from John Walvert. One day, Pam and I went up to Dallas Seminary. 
I'm not sure when it was, 97 or 98. And I was walking around a new building that was there, and this was where Dr. Walbert had his office, and he happened to be, he was uh, the chancellor by this time, and he happened to be in his office, and it was, nobody was around. I think it may have been later in the afternoon or in the summer. And so he invited us into his office, and so we sat down, and we began to visit. And he asked me what I was doing, and I told him what I was doing and where I was working. And <clears throat> uh, he began to ask me some questions about the pastor that I was working for. And he knew him very well. A lot of people don't know this story. Knew him very, very well back in the 40s during World War II. Bob Thiem was probably a captain in the Air Force at the time and was stationed at Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth. And he went to uh, uh, Northwest Presbyterian Church in Fort Worth, which was pastored by John Walvoord. John Walvoord in 1942 or 43 was making about $20 a week as the president of Dallas Seminary and not much more than that as the pastor of Northwest Presbyterian Church. And every Friday afternoon, uh, Bob would take him to the officer's club and buy him a steak dinner as the best meal Dr. Walbert had all week. But Bob was an elder at Northwest Presbyterian Church in Fort Worth. And Dr. Walbert told me that day, he said, you know, he said, I've had a lot of elders and a lot of deacons over the years. He said, but I could go to Bob Theme with any task, no matter what it was, no matter how distasteful it was to him. And if I asked him to do it, he would do it quicker and better than anybody else in the congregation. I could always trust him to do that. And that's what this word means, somebody who is cheerful and ready to take on the task and to do the task. By the way, at that time, Dr. Walbert had a secretary he always claimed was his favorite secretary, best secretary he ever had, and her name was Betty Theme. Just thought y'all would like that little story. So that is what should characterize a pastor. He's doing his job. This is a passion. He does it willingly to serve the Lord. And then you get the next pair in verse 3, chapter 5, verse 3, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So rather than being uh, someone who becomes a tyrant or uh, a, a little lord over his little fiefdom. The pastor is a servant. He serves the congregation through teaching the word, through encouraging them, through praying with them, and uh, being there when they go through difficult times. The pa and therefore, he is an example to the flock. doesn't mean he's perfect. Because I, I've known a lot of pastors in my life. I've been really close to a lot of pastors in my life, and they all have sin natures. And it's sad, but a lot of congregations get really surprised when that sin nature pops up, but they do. But they're all growing and maturing. This word for being lords is the word kata kuriu, kuriuo, kata kuriuo. And it means to exercise power over someone. And this is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew twenty twenty five and following when he is talking to the disciples. Now, Matthew 20, remember, is, is just before he is, um, he's, I think it's just after the, the entry into uh, Jerusalem. And so this is around that time period when he's having these con uh, conflicts with the religious leaders. And so Jesus is training his disciples, and he says to them, he calls them to himself, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Well, was going to contrast. That this is not how leadership manifests in the body of Christ. You have a divine viewpoint of leadership and a human viewpoint of leadership. 
human viewpoint is I'm the boss, I'm in charge, it's all about me, and what am I going to get out of this? Divine viewpoint is it's about me making sure you're successful. I am a servant to make sure you do a good job and you come out ahead. And I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. That's the mark of a good leader. So Jesus says this, the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, that's always our standard. Doesn't it just bother you sometimes when, G- when the Word says you need to do this because that's how Jesus did it? That's a tough pattern to follow. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It is the picture of humility, and that's where Peter goes with this uh, starting in the next section. But next time we'll come back and talk about the motivation in terms of the long-term end game, which is the judgment seat of Christ. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study, to reflect upon these things, to be reminded of your goodness and of your grace, to recognize that we're all called in the body of Christ, we're all gifted in different ways to serve you. Some will be able to serve in uh, official positions of leadership in a congregation. Others are just serving in many different ways, often unseen by others, but seen by you. And Father, we recognize that we are to serve on the basis of uh, bringing glory to you and not to ourselves and to serving one another. And Father, we pray that as we uh, continue this study in the next few weeks on humility, that it will be an opportunity for God the Holy Spirit to challenge us, to teach us, to correct us, that we may uh, be improved in our own spiritual life, not thinking highly of ourselves, but thinking more highly of you and others and the body of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.